Uh, we are in a series uh, where we are, call, we are calling it Context, and we are looking at some of the more abused and misquoted passages in the Bible. Last week we looked at Matthew 7, 1. While, while we're we're going to be in Jeremiah 29, 11 today, for better or worse. And uh, last week we looked at Mer- Jer- uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and we saw that how the world uses this verse to try to prohibit all kinds of judging. And if you confront somebody and, and their sin, if you confront that, this verse will be thrown in your face. Matthew, don't judge. Don't judge, lest you'll be judged. And we saw how that verse is being taken out of the context. That that verse does not condemn all forms of judging. It does not condemn believers being involved in each other's life and, and, and encouraging them to turn away from sin. It, it, it is dealing with hypocrisy. Jesus is dealing with hypocrisy there. He's dealing with, with the, the Pharisees who were holding others to a standard that was unbiblical, that even they did not hold themselves to. That was what Je- that Jesus was dealing with. The reality is, and I was reminded of that this week as I was studying in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. There, there was a man in the Corinthian church who was having an rela- inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. And the church refused to deal with it. And Paul confronts them on that. But listen to what he says in and he says, I'm not talking about judging outsiders. I'm talking about the church. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who were within the church? Part, part of the reason we gather is to encourage one another for, to faithfulness and to godliness. And sometimes that involves confronting each other. But we do it out of love. And, and we said we, we do that when we're dealing with our own sin first. When we're attacking, aggressively attacking our own sin First, and that was what the Pharisees were guilty of. It was hypocrisy. Today, uh, we deal with the next uh, in the line of verses that are abused, and uh, it is, uh, it is. If if I can say this, it's one of my pet peeves. I will say that it is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And on the front end, I'm just going to say, forgive me if this is your life verse. I don't mean to destroy that. I kidded John Cordova. I said, maybe we need to have like a little 55-gallon drum next week and just say, bring all your pillows, bring all your blankets, bring all your bookmarks, bring all that stuff you bought at Lifeway with Jeremiah 29:11 on it, and we'll burn it. You know? No, but we won't do that. We won't go that far. But, but this, is a, this is a very abused verse. And, and this is an extremely abused verse in America where we have everything we could ever want and more. This, we, we abuse this verse. And if you read it on the surface, if you just take it, listen, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Who wouldn't want that as a life verse? Hey, prosperity, health, well, that's God's plan for me. Who wouldn't want that as a verse? I, 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 I promise you, if, if, if Lifeway would do so, if they would release the study. If they release their statistics, this has to be one of the most popular verses for bookmarks and, and, and uh, stickers and graduation cards and, 
and birth announcements and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it, this is God's personal promise to every believer of long life, prosperity, protection, good future. Hey, all is well. Come to Christ. All is well. It, it is almost, it's used as God's stamp of the American dream. This is God's endorsement of the American dream. That's how we quote this verse. And, and that's what we love about this verse. I, I was reminded of the reality that, that, of just the incorrectness and the inappropriateness of that, even this week with a, with a tragedy of, of, of some missionaries that were preparing to head over to Japan. A family of five were preparing to head overseas to, for missionary work in Japan, and they were in an accident. A semi-truck hit them, and all five believers died as they prepared to head to Japan for missionary work. I promise you this. I promise you John Piper, when he did that funeral, did not quote this verse. What was God's plans for them? It was for a three-year-old to die. For a five-year-old. God is sovereign. Could he have stopped it? Absolutely. But he, he, he is sovereign. And, and we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 4 that not a single thing happens to us that is wasted. That God is sovereign and he uses it. He uses it. That, that is not what this verse is dealing with. This verse, I want us to see today, to answer the question, can we claim this verse today? Is God on the hook today to you and I in America in 2016? Is He on the hook today to fulfill this verse the way He was when He said this verse to Israel? And I will tell you on the front end, the answer is no. Does God have plans for us? Absolutely He does. Does God have a future for us as believers? He does. Does He have a future for non-believers? He does. But it may not be here on this earth. You will not get all the fruit of His plans for you here on this earth. God is not on the hook for backing this up today. He, he's not on the hook for using it or doing what we claim for this verse. That's what I want us to see today, and I want us to look at it the same way that we did Matthew. Again, I said in this series, I want us to approach these verses in, the, in, in a way that will help us learn to study the Bible, to teach, to teach us how to study the Bible. And, and, and I want to start the same way we did last week. I want to set the context for the book of Jeremiah. I want to explain to us what is going on and what was the setting when God said this. And I think when we see the setting, we'll understand why I've said what I've said, that this verse, we can't quote this verse and, and hold God hostage to this verse today the way that we do today. And I think you'll see clearly why. I want us to show us what was going on when God spoke this promise to Israel. Context. The first thing, the first thing you'll see there on your handout, we're ju jumping in here. The context of this passage that it finds itself in is a declaration of impending judgment of God's people due to their disobedience. That right there ought to be our first caution. When you understand the context of Jeremiah 29, 11 and what is going on, God is judging His people. Jeremiah, he was a prophet. A prophet was an individual that was a messenger of God. God would give a prophet a message and he would go to God's people and he would deliver, faithfully deliver that message to God's people. It was for a specific time, a specific people, and it was a specific message. 
And the message that Jeremiah was tasked to communicate was not a popular message. If you study Jeremiah, it is that he had a role, he had a job that I promise you none of us in here would be quick to sign up for. He, he enters the stage, he enters, he enters Israel's history at a time where Israel's and kings, his, their kings and their leaders were corrupt and they were literally leading people away from the Lord. Jeremiah 32, if we had time, you would go there. Jeremiah 32, 33, and 34 tells us that, they, that the leaders of Israel were allowing idols into the temple. Jeremiah 32, 35 tells us that they were sacrificing their own children to Baal and Moloch. Jeremiah 7 tells us that they served many gods. Jeremiah 44 says that they even pursued these other gods and were committing spiritual adultery with these other gods. Jeremiah 7 tells us that they were exploiting the poor, that they were raising up men for them that would tickle their ears, that would, that would tell them what they wanted to hear in spite and contrary to what Jeremiah... Jeremiah is going around saying, God is going to judge you, repent. And these other prophets are out there saying, no, he won't, no, he won't, you're his people. And they were, they were oh yeah, let's listen to him. Look with me at Jeremiah. Turn back to Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, just to get a quick summary of these people and the, the, the context of this judgment. Jeremiah 7, 9-11. Jeremiah says, in, starting in verse 8, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. See, they were listening to these false teachers. He says, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, God says, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, that you may do all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, even I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. Live how we want to live all week, and then come into church and pretend like we're going to worship God. That was the context. Do whatever you want to do and then come in and act like God's going to bless. They, they were trying to serve two masters. And God had gotten to the point where he had had enough. And so God sends Jeremiah into this culture to confront them and to proclaim a message of judgment and wrath. Listen, you're going to be carried away by your enemies if you do not repent. Babylon is going to overtake you and is going to just take you away if you do not repent. They had broken the covenant that they had with the Lord, the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 26 through 28 declares blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And God was faithful to both. That's what we see here in Jeremiah. They chose to live how they wanted to live. And God says, if you're going to choose that way, then guess what? You're going to get curses. That's Jeremiah's message. In Jeremiah 1, verse 10, listen, this is the message that Jeremiah was tasked with. Just to give you an idea. See, I have appointed you over this day, appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. Listen, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Imagine, imagine going to tell your buddies... And that being your message, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. If you, if you look over in Jeremiah 15, verses 2 and 3, look what he says. And it shall be when they say to you, where should we go? 
Then you are to tell them, thus says the Lord, those destined for death to death, those destined for the sword to the sword, those destined to famine to famine, those destined for captivity to captivity. That's Jeremiah's message. That's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. Though That's the plans I have for you. That's part of the plans. If, if you were to go to Jeremiah 5, we won't, but you'll see that very, very, very few people had not fallen into apostasy. This was a nationwide issue of sin. Imagine preaching that message. Imagine knowing on the front end, if, if we go to Jeremiah 7... Imagine preaching that message knowing that God has already told you, I'm not going to let them repent. They ain't going to repent. Listen to Jeremiah 7, 16. Look at what he says to Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people and do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. That's how bad it had gotten. Don't even, God's literally saying, don't even talk to me about it. Don't even talk to me about it. You see this same message in chapter 11, verse 14, chapter 14, 11, 12, 15, 1. This, what God is saying is this, there's no stopping my judgment, Jeremiah. This is not going to be like Exodus 32 when Moses uh, pleaded with me on behalf of the people and, and I relented. You see that in 8 through 14 when, when God relented in his judgment, withheld the wrath that he had intended. Not this time, God says, it ain't happening this, that, this time. My people are going to go into exile for 70 years at the hands of the Babylonians, and there's no stopping it. That, that's the message that Jeremiah preached. But in the midst, in the midst of that pronouncement, in the midst of God saying, look, you're going to be exiled for 70 years, we find Jeremiah 29.11. And God says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity. To give you a hope and a future. The key to Jeremiah 29, 11 is this, that God offers mercy within His wrath. Even within His wrath, God offered mercy. Even within the darkness of judgment, God offers hope. Even in the midst of judging their sin and judging their apostasy and judging all that was going on there, God says this, I'll be faithful. I'll remember my covenant. Think about that. That's the power of Jeremiah 29, 11 to these people. You're, you're going to have 70 years of judgment of sin, but God says, I'm going to give you hope. Entering into that 70 years, I'll be waiting on you on the backside. It would be like God saying, look, Chris, you're going to have cancer. I'll see you on the backside of your cancer. How would that change your cancer? It'd change everything about it. If God said, look, three or four, year, three, four years, Chris, it's going to be nasty, but guess what? I'll see you on the backside. Change everything about it. And on the front end of their judgment, God says, I'm going to give you hope, and I'm going to let you know that I'm not done with you. Why? Because I'm a covenant-keeping God, and I'm going to offer you grace and I'm going to offer you hope even in the midst of judgment. God offered them a future because he had covenantly committed to them even in spite of their judgment. He offers them, he offers them faithfulness and he offers them hope. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is a verse to fuel hope 
knowing that God was not through with them as a people. And when you see it that way, it changes everything about Jeremiah 29, 11. This was not just some random promise. This has to do with the character of our God. This has to do with a faithful God that no matter what, God is remaining true and faithful no matter what. That's the context. This verse has more to do with the character of God than with the character of the people. This is a wonderful promise in the midst of great judgment that is completely undeserved. It's grace. That's the context of the book. But if, if, if you drill down deeper to look at the context of Jeremiah 29, 11 specifically, that's, ver that's number two there on your handout. The promise, again, this is not a general promise. This promise was given to a specific people at a specific time, and it was given in spite of their disobedience. This is not a general promise. In the midst of great sin, God offered His people grace. And it, that is a key point that we miss if we just pluck this verse out of context. In the midst of great sin, in the midst of great judgment, God offered mercy and hope. In the midst of a 70, during the 70 years when you're in exile, just know this, I have not ceased to be faithful. And when those 70 years are completed, I will still continue to be faithful. If you, if you read Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14, you get the bigger picture. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, starting in verse 4, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Why were they in exile? Not on accident. God did this. Look at what he says to them. While you're in exile, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the father of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Literally, he's saying, you pray for Babylon. Why? For in its welfare, you will have welfare. There, there's a whole other sermon right there. You, if, you, if you hate the culture you live in, you know what the Word of God would say to do? Then pray for it. Then seek its welfare. Because its welfare is your welfare. It's not pull up the tent pegs and just let it go. No, no, pray for it. There's a whole sermon there. You don't like America? Pray for it. For this says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. Verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and look what it says, Fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. Do you see God's faithfulness? Do you see what's at stake here? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and for, not for calamity, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. A, cu a couple of notes on your, on your handout you'll see there, just so you see the, the specificity of this promise. This is not a general promise. God is speaking to a specific people in a specific time. Look, look at verse 1. 
These are the words of the letter with Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people to whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken in exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. Who is God talking to? A specific group of people. He's talking to the exiles. Look at verse 4. He's talking not only to a specific group of people, he's talking to a specific set of circumstances. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from, Jeru- from Babylon. These are specific circumstances. He's talking about Babylonian captivity. Look at verse 10. This promise has a specific point of fulfillment. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. Did God do that? We'll go to Ezra 1 and see that God did that. Absolutely, he did that. But not only that, there are specific promises. That's verse 11. They were specific to Israel. This is a promise of restoration for God's people in the midst of the wrath of God. He is promising them restoration. And we completely miss the grace of God. We rob this passage of the grace of God in its fullness when we rip it out of context. These are a group of people who in no way, no shape, no form deserved mercy. Didn't deserve hope, didn't deserve anything. You know what God offers? Hope and mercy. And He offers a future and He offers prosperity where they deserved mercy. To be destroyed. And why? Because God had promised them that he would do so. And we'll get to that. Abrahamic covenant. Uh, let me illust- try to illustrate it this way. Suppose Jordan Rayner and I. Suppose he, he, he and I are talking. And he needs a ride to the airport. And I say, hey, Jordan, I'll pick you up here at Odessa in the morning at 730. That would be big grace for me to come pick you up at 730. No, I'm teasing. I'll pick you up at 730 and I'll take you to the airport. Specific promise to a specific person at a specific time. So suppose, suppose that you happen to overhear me talking to Jordan and you happen to need a ride to the airport. Okay, you show up at 7.30 and say, hey, can I get my ride? Am I obligated to give you a ride? I didn't tell you I'd give you a ride. Suppose I came in my two-passenger car because all I expected was Jordan. I haven't offended you. I haven't broken a promise to you. I never told you that I'd go. See, that's the challenge. Now, in my great character, in my goodness, in my mercy, I might take you. The people pleaser in me might say, you know what? They'll talk more bad about me and how sorry I am. I better take them. You know. My point is this. I'm not obligated to take you. Why? Because I didn't promise you I'd take you. You hijacked Jordan's promise and you put it on yourself. And you know what you did? You set yourself up for discouragement and failure and frustration when you took a promise that wasn't meant to you and you tried to apply it to you. And in Jeremiah 29, God does not give a generalized blanket promise of prosperity for every believer in any age. And that is, if we're honest, that is how we take this verse. That's how we interpret it. That God is going to honor my dreams of having a future based on my terms. Here's my, here's my plan for my life, God. You've promised me a hope and a future. Go make this happen, God. That, that's how we take this verse. Prosperous, smooth, healthy, long life. And we go, Jeremiah 29, 11 says it. And, and people are making millions of dollars throwing it out there. 
And, and we take this verse to mean that God is going to provide me a future based on my terms. And if we rip this verse out of its context, if we just put this, there's a reason, and we'll get to it in a minute, why they don't go down a few verses when they embroider this on the blankets. There's a reason. They stop at only verse 11. And if we just rip that one out, well, yeah, God's on the hook. God's on the hook. Well, tell that to the, to the mom and the dad and the in-laws that just buried those five people in Minneapolis. Tell God, to, tell that to them. Tell that to some of you... Karen and Jimmy's mom, Barbara, is at the bedside of her brother's wife right now who is going to die at any moment. Tell that to him. It doesn't say that. It said that for Israel. But listen, we rob it of its context because even the blessing that God promised was coming after tremendous suffering. The blessing would come 70 years later. 70 years of suffering. And the point is God is saying, look, I'm faithful. Even though you are not faithful, I am faithful. The emphasis of this verse, the power is on the character of God, not the blessing. Not even the people being blessed. The, the hero here is God. We, we use this verse to say something in, the, in our New Testament theology that, that is totally contrary, totally contrary to the New Testament. Totally. You look at the New Testament, we've seen it. The New Testament promises you and I suffering. Jeremiah 29 gives a specific assurance, you see it on your handout, of a particular benefit to a particular people at a precise time. And if we had time, we would go to Daniel 1-2. That is exactly how Daniel understood Jeremiah, 70 years later, when he read this passage, it says Daniel humbled himself in confession and repentance on behalf of the nation to trigger the restoration. That's Daniel 9, 1 and 2. God was faithful to do what he said he would do. And beyond that, before, before again, we're tempted to hijack this promise for ourselves and make it about us when it's not about us. Think about this. Not even the recipients... When, God's, when Jeremiah said this, not even the recipients could take that promise. Seventy years later, how many of them you think were alive 70 years later when God honored this promise? Hardly any. Hardly any. Even the nation, even the nation at the time where Jeremiah speaks this would not receive this promise. Jeremiah's words... It was, it was for the, those, those individuals, he's saying, look, there's going to be a generation on the backside of this. Virtually none of y'all will live long enough to experience this, but your, your nation will, and I will bless them. It was a promise for future welfare for the nation, not particular, not, not prosperity for any one person. And you see it on your handout. This was a national, what I'm trying to say is this was a national promise. It was not an individual promise. Nationally, the Israel would prosper and have a future and a hope even though many of the individuals alive at that time would not most that most who heard that promise would not receive the promise and if you need further evidence to to kind of confront our current method of hijacking this verse just some other evidence you see on your hand now two predictions for god's for god's people here but both have to do with God's faithfulness. And you see it on your handout. A, 
The first one is verse 11. That's the popular one. That's the encouraging promise of restoration. Go down to verse 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord of hosts in 29, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and I will make them a terror of all kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a whore. And a... There's punishment coming. Why don't you have that on? Hey, put that on a uh, put that on a um, on an Afghan. Send it to your friend. Put that on a graduation card. Put that. Put, send it to your friend. Here you go. Blessings be on your head. You know, stitch that on a pillow and put that on your bed, right on your cow. I mean, come on. But here's my point, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to make light. I'm not trying to offend. What I'm saying is that verse is found in the same chapter, just six letters of Jeremiah 29. Why can we hijack 29:11 and not hijack 17? Why? Because it doesn't suit our goals. It doesn't suit our agenda. And, and Jeremiah 29 is recording two distinct and opposite plans for God's people. One for welfare and not calamity. The other for calamity and not welfare. And these are not, again, if you're looking for this to be a personal promise, which of those two apply to you? Is it the encouraging one or is it the disciplined one? And how do you know? And both of those were for Israel. I mean, just, just a side note about context. If you don't hear anything else, that's why I named the series Context. Context, it's like real estate. Clay Brown will tell you location, location, location. I'm going to tell you context, context, context. Listen to Jeremiah 44, verse 27. Behold, I am watching over, for, over them for harm and not for good. And for all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword and by famine until they are completely gone. How about that one? It's not so encouraging. I don't see that on any bumper stickers. It's in Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 49. 49 verse 32, their camels will be plunder, their many cattle for booty, and I will scatter to all the winds. Listen, who are you going to do that to? Those who cut the corners of their hair. You got a haircut lately? Shame on you. We ought to just let our hair go. I'm in big trouble if that's the case. But, but again, you just pluck stuff out of context. I, don't, I, I, I show that just to say, if you go back to, I think it's Jeremiah 7, he says to cut their hair. Again, specific things. There is so much more to this promise than simply just wave a magic wand over our lives and quote this verse and we get a blessing. It, is a, it fits into the larger context and the flow of the Bible. This is God displaying His covenantal faithfulness in the old in the psalms it's called loving kindnesses it's the word kessed h-e-s-e-d one of the number one ways that god is described in the bible loving kindness lamentations three twenty three. he says indeed your loving kindnesses never cease they are new every morning god is showing that he is he is a covenant keeping god and he will keep his word no matter what he will keep his word even right at the beginning, go to verse 11. Even right at the beginning, he says, When 70 years have been completed, I will visit you and fulfill my good work to you and bring you back. For I know the plans. And he goes on. Literally, God is reminding them 
of designs that he's already communicated to them. You, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when he makes a covenant to Abraham. And he says, I will bless you, and I will make you a great people, and I will give you a land, and I will do this stuff. Unconditional covenant. Unconditional covenant. God promises protection for Abraham's seed no matter what. But there's also at play here the Mosaic Covenant, and that's where Deuteronomy 26 through 28 comes into play. And if you, if you obey me, here's the blessings. But if you disobey me, here's the curses. God is saying, God is walking that line and saying, I'm going to be faithful not only to the Abrahamic Covenant because I said I would, but I'm also going to be faithful to the Mosaic Covenant and I'm going to discipline you. He's writing to warn a nation in disobedience that they're about to suffer consequences, but he's also reminding them, I have not forgotten my covenant with you. Both, both blessing and curse are in store. And, and if you go all the way back, just a little uh, Old, Old Testament history, if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 30, restoration is promised. So it shall be when all those things, he says, have come upon you the blessing and the curse that I have set before you, and you call to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord and obey Him with all your heart and soul, you and your sons, then the Lord will restore you from captivity. God is faithful. God is reaffirming His covenant here, that even in the midst of tremendous sin, our sin did not compromise God's faithfulness. Israel's sin did not compromise his faithfulness to them. It did not compromise the Abrahamic covenant. And, and our part of this is we have been grafted in through faith. We saw that in Galatians 3. We have been grafted into God's family, into the family of Abraham through faith. And we, we'll see that later. God does have plans for his people and he does have a future, but probably not here on this earth. Our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, we'll see it is in heaven. And it says, of those we eagerly await, await. We're not promised these things. They were for Israel. The reality is quite contrary to that. Philippians 1.29 says, for it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe on him, but to what? Suffer for his namesake. The blessing of Christianity today is good. We not only get to believe upon Christ, but we get to suffer for Christ. God's plans, that's His plans. And so you, you ask, well, do these verses even matter? Of course they matter. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped. All Scripture, you go to Romans 15.4, it says, We have the Scriptures, why? For our hope. We, why do we read the scriptures? For our hope. Romans 15, 4, let me read it. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Why do we read the Old Testament? Why do we read these promises? Why do we read how faithful God was to Israel? Because God, the same God that was faithful then, will be faithful to you and I today. That's the promise. We read the scriptures and we see a God who never, ever gave up on his people. Literally, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's encouraging. That, that's the application. This is about God. This is about his character. 
And the application is what we see in number three there on your handout. God is faithful. We walk away from Jeremiah 29, 11, seeing the bigger picture and saying this. God is faithful to do what he says he will do throughout all the ages. He will always be faithful to do what he says he's going to do. I, I, just, just to prove that, just a little Old Testament. We're going to try to wet our, wet our whistle, create an appetite for the Old Testament. You don't understand what's going on here if we don't understand the Old Testament. Just write these down as I read them for the sake of time. Leviticus 26, verse 34 through 39. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are enemies of your land. Had, you know, their, their, their punishment had something to do with their disobedience over here. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it will observe the rest, which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness to their hearts in the land, lands of the enemy, and the sound of the driven leaf will chase them, and even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as through the sword. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running for the sword, Although no one is pursuing and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies, but you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity and the lands of the enemies. Listen, God is promising. He has already said, look, if you, if you, if you sin, if you forsake me, if you pursue other gods, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into exile. You're going to go in exile. You go over to Leviticus 36, same thing. God promises the same thing. If you, if you turn from me, if you turn from me in Leviticus 26, verse 40, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna perish. But look at verse 40. It also prophesies their release. If you confess your iniquity and their iniquity of your fathers, guess what? He says, I'll release you. And again, we see that in Ezra 1. And you say, well, Chris, what, what about New Testament passages? What about, what about New Testament passages? Is there anything that says the same thing in the New Testament? Sure there is. Turn to, if you turn to 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, you see a picture that God is faithful on both sides. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the central conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that unrighteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day by day by day by their lawless deeds. Listen, verse 9. Then the Lord, here's the point. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the flesh. God knows how to rescue the righteous. He'll be faithful. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you, declares the Lord. Yet in the midst of that, you have Hebrews 12, 7 through 10 that says, I discipline those whom I love. Still today, God disciplines those whom he loves. And our, and our takeaway, our takeaway is that God is always faithful. He is always faithful to judge sin where there is no repentance and faith in Christ and to forgive sin where there is repentance and faith in Christ. And, and we, we see that all throughout scriptures. Romans 8, we've read it before. It's one of my favorite verses 31 and following. Look, listen to what Paul says. 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over up freely for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or fam or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Listen, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. God is faithful. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, listen, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? God is faithful. Listen, Babylonian captivity, Israel's sin could not compromise God's faithfulness. You know what the New Testament says? Neither can yours. Nothing uncreated, nothing created is going to separate you from the Lord. If you're here today and you're in Christ Jesus, listen to me. Nothing you go through is going to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus towards you. If you're here today... And, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, listen to me. Nothing you can ever do can get that on your own apart from believing in Jesus Christ and His work. You will be punished. The character of God demands that sin be punished. And the gospel is this, that God crucified His own Son. He punished His own Son, that whosoever would look to that punishment as His own would be saved from their own punishment. That's the gospel. But God was 100% faithful to deal with sin. And nothing, nothing will separate us. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, nothing will separate us. And the primary, the primary application for us today, church, is a spiritual application. It's a spiritual application. We want everything here and now, and listen to me, it ain't coming that way. Ephesians 1.3 makes this very clear. Listen to Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The, the word there in, 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 in blessing in Ephesians 1.3, you see it on your handout, is the word eulogy, and it means to speak well of. Literally, God has spoken good things about us. Guaranteed them. You say, what are those good things? Well, if you read verses 4 through 13, and I gave you some, on your handout, you'll see them. And the first one is the election is saints. The election is saints. Here's your first blessing, believer. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Chose you that you'd be holy and blameless. And he did that in chapter 2 when we were dead in our trespasses. There was nothing, there was nothing cute, nothing great about us that would warn it. God chose us. Why? Because he's good. The second spiritual blessing you see there is the adoption as his children. John 1.12 says, For as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be children of God. Look at verse 5. He predestined us, in Ephesians 1, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? The kind intention of his will. Again, nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with you. The kind intention of his will. Blessing. Now, see there, we are fully accepted by grace. Look at verse 6. 
to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the beloved grace. John 1.16 says, of, the, of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. D there, we receive the redemption through His blood. The word redemption means to buy back. It means paying a ransom, paying the price for sin. God did that. He says, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. That's why Daniel's saying about today. The death, burial, and resurrection, it's our, it's our redemption. It's paying the price that God's faithfulness demanded for our sin. But we also receive forgiveness of our sins. That's a blessing. He speaks to that in verse 7. Another spiritual blessing. We can know the will of God. Verse 8, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention. We can know God and we can know His will. Verse 11 says, we receive an inheritance. Of, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Verse 13 says that we're sealed through the Holy Spirit. In Him you have, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed, you were sealed in Him through the Holy Spirit, who was given as a pledge. That word sealed there, and pledge means a down payment. A down payment, what does it do? It guarantees future payments. You know, you, you, you want more? Look at 1 Corinthians 3.9. We're laborers together with God. For 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 11.2, we're the bride of Christ. For Philippians 4.7, we have a peace that passes all understanding. 1 John 4.4, greater, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. We, we have blessings upon blessings. And all of those are accessed through Christ. And the way to be in Christ is to repent and turn away from your sins, Acts 17.30. It is to confess to God that you are a sinner, Romans 10.9. It is to believe that Jesus died to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And, and, and the blessings, listen, the blessings that we receive, they're coming, but they're future. Even Romans 8.23-25, listen to what it says. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, the down payment. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, and hope that is seen is not hope. For, he who, for who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Listen, we have not fully recognized who we fully are. We have not received the full blessing. We wait. Have we been adopted? I, and I, we have absolutely, I equate it and I've said it. It's almost like we were in China and we were adopted by a family in America and, and they put us on a plane in China to fly over to see our parents that have adopted us. We have the adoption papers in our hand. But listen, while we're flying from China to America, we have not experienced the fullness of being adopted, have we? No, we haven't. That, that's where we are as children of God. We have the declaration that we have been adopted. We are flying in that sense to meet our Heavenly Father, our, our family. We have not fully recognized who we will be. It's coming. 
There'll be a day where that adoption will be consummated. There'll be a day where that little kid will get off that plane and run into the arms of his mother and father and live with them for the rest of his life. That's the consummation of the adoption. There'll be a day when we die and we will live forever in the presence of our king. That's the promise. That's the hope in the future. It's not here and now. And Revelation 21.1 paints that picture very clearly. If I can get to it. Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or, mourning or crying or pain for the first things that passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these for the, faith, for the words are faithful and true. Do you see it? God is faithful and he is true. And what I'm begging us as a people is to trust the character of God. Not our circumstances. Not things of this earth. Trust the character of God. Just like that song said, might our, might our cry today be what Jesus himself cried when he was facing the cross. Not my will, Father, but your will. Not my will, but your will. That, that's why I picked that song. Thy will be done. I, we would be a people that would trust the character of our Father no matter what. That he is working all things together for good. For those who, and that good is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That Romans 8.30. That Romans 5 says that all our suffering is producing in us hope. And that hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Because it's rooted in Christ and he's trustworthy. That's why 2 Corinthians 4. Know, know this momentary light affliction, he says, is producing in us what? An eternal a hope, an eternal weight of glory. Nothing is wasted. That's why you and I can suffer now, why we can give up whatever it asks to give up, whatever it costs us. Why? Because Romans 8.18 says the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. God has a plan, and He has a future, and He has a hope for every one of us. And it's what? To look like Christ. To reflect Christ. Even in the midst of suffering. And I pray that we would be a people that uses God's Word right. And sees that our Father is trustworthy, that He's faithful, that even in the midst of tremendous sin that we found in Jeremiah 29 amongst the people, God never wavered in His faithfulness. That's the takeaway. God is faithful. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, listen to me. No matter what you face, no matter what you go through, He's faithful and He will provide salvation through Jesus Christ just like He promised. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, God is just like, he, just like He disciplined His own people. There's coming a day when you die without Christ, you will be cast into hell eternally. I, I, I can't back down on that. God's faithful to bless, and He's faithful to curse. And He will always be true. And He has provided a way for the forgiveness of our sins at the cost of His own Son. It's Jesus. By faith, look to Christ and have your sins forgiven. Believer, if you say, I've already done that, by faith, continue looking to Christ, knowing that one day, one day it will all have been worth it.